come in. Let's start with a quick introduction. Welcome. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Dr. Walcott Bido. Uh, most times you see the stern side of me with regards to professionalism points. I'm the person that takes it away. I'm also the person that you come to when you're not performing well in terms of academic advising and stuff like that. However, for the next two weeks, you'll get to see the fun side of me, the part where I actually absolutely enjoy, uh, which is talking about food and how food is processed physiologically. Now, during the next two weeks, you'll find physio interspersed between your biochemistry and your anatomy lectures. And so what I'll try to do is help you understand the normal actions or the normal physiological mechanisms that's associated with consuming a meal. And then what I'll try to do is pull bits and pieces from your biochemistry, from your anatomy, and make it a little bit more relevant with your physio. You'll find I do lots of clicker questions. I start every lecture with a clicker question. So make sure you're here if we're at an 8 o'clock session. I end every lecture with a clicker question. Now, in between, you also see lots of clinical correlates. And most of these correlates are based on cases that I have actually seen. So you'll see through case presentations as well. Now, office hours for the next two weeks, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm available 12 to 2. You can come alone. You can come with friends. Uh, it's fine. It's open. So you I'm in lower charter on the right-hand side. Email me. Anytime, anytime you've got a difficult question, send it to me. I've been known to receive emails at 3 in the morning. Doesn't mean I answer them at 3 in the morning, but I see them at 3 in the morning, and you'll get a prompt response. I always tell students, if you've got a question, more than likely somebody else in the class has a difficulty with that. So send it to me, and most times what I do is I bring it back in class the next day, and we talk about it just for a little bit. Now, you're going to be with me for the next two hours. The first hour is going to be packed because I'll cram or uh, put a lot of uh, general overview of the function and regulation of the GI tract. So I'll give you a brief overview of all the mechanisms, and then I'll touch on at the end a few of the hormones that we'll talk about uh, in depth throughout the next two weeks. And then during the second hour, we'll take it a little bit lighter when we talk about the mouth, the salivary glands, as well as the esophagus. Now, I don't know if you guys have the fifth edition, but we were using the fourth edition. I understand this was a little discrepancy a few weeks ago. However, it shouldn't be that much different with regards to your signed reading. Now, the objectives, you'll find that all of your objectives are matched now with the QR codes. And in some instances, you may have a URL, especially with the clinical cases embedded in that QR code as well, so you can do a little bit of extra reading on the clinical cases if you wish. Now, questions. Always do your questions. 20 at night. Hardest is usually from pretests. I like Guyton because it closely resembles the style in which we ask our clinical vignettes and the questions. And BRS or motor questions as a general, am I understanding the concepts? Now, physiology will be presented as if it seems simple, but it's deceptively presented simple, right? So make sure you make your concept maps, make sure you know your details. It's a lot of details to get embedded. 
within this period. Right, so generally in this first hour, what we'll do, I'll take you through what happens when you consume something from your mouth as, uh, until you're ready to eliminate or excrete it. We'll touch on what controls or what regulates the normal functioning of the digestive process. We'll look at innovation in terms of ENS, your neurocrines, talk about other hormones such as your endocrine hormones as well as your paracrine hormones, but just touching them lightly until we get into the segment where these hormones will begin to function. And then we'll focus on some specifics in terms of clinical cases. you can discuss so if you're now coming in this is your first click a question make sure you click in So let's see how you did, and hopefully you would have pre-read, so I'll know if you did, and hopefully by the end of this first hour, you should be able to answer this question. Oh, excellent. Right, so in this case, what we're looking at, or the key giveaway in this, is a very easy one. You want to talk about the stimulation of the gallbladder, or gallbladder contraction, gallbladder motility, and the key word here would be your CCK or cholecystokinin. Excellent. Now, with regards to the parts of the GI tract, what we usually do is we split this into two separate sections. We talk about the tract, and then we talk about the accessory glands. Now, with regards to the tract, you have separate compartments that we look at with regards to where this food will be held, and then we'll look at the function that each of these separate sections will have. Now, in terms of the mouth or the oral cavity, you think about the mechanical breakdown that's going to happen here, and you have to pay attention to what is secreted in that saliva, particularly the salivary amylases and the concentration or the ions that are present in the saliva. Once you've taken in that meal, you look at the salivary glands. In terms of salivary glands, you look at the function of the saliva, the lubricating aspect of it, how it's able to uh, increase the surface area or break down these particles into smaller particles for absorption. We'll look at the esophagus in the second hour as the conduit, the structure of the esophagus, how it acts in terms of motility, the different types of peristaltic actions that you'll find. Once you get into the stomach, the stomach is not just a big sac. It's churning, it's masticating properties. What's secreted, the gastric acid, the gastric juices, the components within the stomach, how chyme is macerated 
and then slowly released into the small intestines for absorption of those micronutrients. You've got lengths of small intestines, and this is where you're going to have maximum digestion and absorption occurring. So when we get to the small intestines, we're going to pay close attention to the different enzymes that's excreted in the small intestines, what facilitates the absorption, and how these micronutrients or ions are absorbed into the small intestines. The large intestines is the second reservoir. You have small amount of digestion happening. You still have a small amount of absorption, but we're going to pay particular attention to fecal compaction, fecal uh, manufacturing, removal of water, and the storage aspect of that fecal material until you can conveniently eliminate that waste. With regards to the accessory glands, we touched on the salivary glands, but a major one that we'll talk about is the liver, the hepatobiliary system. So we'll look at bile, how bile is secreted. We'll look at the storage function of the liver, and we'll barely just lightly touch on the other functions of the liver. The pancreas, what we'll pay attention to in the pancreas is the bicarb secretion, We'll look at some of the hormones that are secreted and the role this plays in helping to ensure that a large amount of digestive enzymes are present to work in the small intestine. The gallbladder will be in the same lecture with the liver and we'll talk about the storage and concentration of bile. Now, generally, with regards to the functions of the GI tract, we classify or we mainly think about the digestive function of the GI tract. And when we talk about digestion, we look at, hey, is it mechanically broken down? Is it chemically broken down? And we used to, maybe in undergrad, think about only what are those digestive enzymes. In this case, as we move a little bit more or focus a little bit more, we want to pay attention now to the hormones particularly your endocrine hormones. We'll also talk about your paracrine hormones and how these are particularly released, what stimulates that release, and how it functions in the GI tract in its specific compartments. Now, motility and secretion are usually thought of together, but they will both play a role in that absorption. Now, when we think of absorption, it's not just the nutrients. We think of electrolytes, we think of water. And so, in each of these different lectures, we're going to touch on various transport models. And these transport models are going to be important with regards to certain mechanisms of ionic movement. A smaller role, you have the storage. So you have the stomach and the large intestines acting as your reservoirs. So when we talk about the stomach, how is that small sac able to function as a reservoir? You see it's receptive relaxation. And so we understand or we talk about the vagal-vagal reflexes that will play a role in that accommodation. Now, additional functions that we lightly touch on, one, importantly, getting rid of that fecal waste used via a matter of defecation, and it's the only time we get to talk about defecation and enjoy it. Now, you think about the protective nature of the GI tract. 
Now, it's loaded with a lot of pear patches embedded. You've got immunoglobulin in your saliva. You've got that gastric acid. So you've got several mechanisms within that GI tract that is going to help you in that protective mechanism. And of course, we'll touch on a lot throughout each of these lectures are your secretions. Now, you may only consume as much as two liters in a day, meaning food or drink, but we have as much as 10 liters, nine to 10 liters, being secreted from various aspects of the GI tract. And so as we go through each of the segments, we'll talk about what's secreted, the maximum amount of, of, of solutions that are secreted, and what enhances or stimulates these secretions. Now, when we look at the GI tract, think of this as an integrated function. Once you've ingested that meal and you start that chemical and physical breakdown of what you've eaten, then you want to facilitate digestion and absorption. And what's going to facilitate digestion and absorption is what you secrete and how you move this along the GI tract. So when we get to motility, you have to think about it hand in hand. What is being secreted? What are the ions? What are the nutrients? What are the fluids? What are the digestive juices? And how are we moving it along this GI tract? Are we moving it via peristalsis? Are we moving it via segmentation? And as we go through each of the different lectures, we'll understand which plays a role when. Now, once you've taken out what you needed from what you've consumed, then you eliminate this in an orderly manner. And so we touched on ingestion, the masticator, the salivary secretions, in digestion, we talk about a physical and chemical breakdown. And then with absorption, particularly in this first hour, we look at that transport model and the movement of nutrients, water, and electrolytes. So just a quick reminder, absorption across the epithelium. So we want substances from the lumen to the ECF. This can be active or passive. Secretion, we move in substances from the ECF back to the lumen. So let's focus now on secretion. So a few minutes ago, we said as much as 10 liters can be secreted daily. And where are these 10 liters coming from? It can be from your salivary uh, uh, glands as saliva. It can be gastric juices. It can be pancreatic juice. And it can also be bile. Now, the reason that you have all of these juices being secreted is to ensure that you've got sufficient digestive enzymes present. You want to ensure that once you've masticated and broken down these particles into smaller pieces, enough digestive enzymes are present to start acting on these particles. And so when we look at the fluid balance, you'll see the salivary glands can produce as much as 1.5, 500 mils of bile per day, two liters of gastric juices, intestinal secretions and pancreatic secretions, both accounting for three liters each. Now notice, even though you're secreting as much as nine liters, you do not excrete nine liters a day. That will be very problematic. You're only excreting about 100 mils in your feces. If you've got about 300 or more, then you're worried. 
majority of that fluid is reabsorbed back in your small intestines. And what is missed by your small intestines is usually taken back up in your large intestines. And so you've got compaction of that fecal material and uh, formation of the feces for excretion. Now the motility is going to move that digestive product along the GI tract. And depending on where it is, then the name will change. You'll have your chyme, and then you'll have your fecal content, depending on where you are. Now, the motility is usually facilitated by your smooth muscles. And of course, we'll talk about your circular as well as longitudinal smooth muscles, and which compartment has each of these type of muscles. The regulation is usually neural input, particularly the extrinsic system and the intrinsic system. When we talk about extrinsic, we talk about the ANS, particularly parasympathetics. When we talk about intrinsic, we talk about ENS, your enteric nervous system. And we'll touch on how these hormones and paracrines play a role. Now, if you've got tonic contractions, your tonic contractions usually last for minutes to hours. And where would you see tonic contractions? Where would you find your tonic contractions? Exactly. You're going to see them at your sphincters. Now, the phasic contractions, these are the ones that cycle, where you've got your periods of contraction and relaxation. This is where you're going to see along the gut of the small intestines. You're going to see this for your peristaltic motion. You're going to see this for your, your segmentation motion or your hostral formation. Now, a quick history review. We're not going to go into details. You've got your outer serosa. You've got your longitudinal, nestled between your longitudinal and your circular muscle. You've got your first plexus, your myenteric plexus, or your orbex plexus. Underneath that, in your submucosa, you've got your Meissner's plexus. You've got your submucosa, and then, of course, your mucosa. Notice the location of each of these plexuses is going to help you remember what's the function of each of these plexuses. So notice the submucosa nestled within the Meissner's, nestled within your submucosal plexus, is going to play an active role in your secretions, the hormones that are released, versus your Arbuck or your myenteric plexus, which is nestled between your muscular layers, it's going to help to regulate that muscular contraction and relaxation. And you can discuss. Easy questions today. Five more seconds. All right. Nice. Yes. Excellent. So A, B, and C, they're all going to be related to your submucosal plexus. In this case, 
you're talking about your myenteric plexus or your orbex plexus, and so we're thinking about smooth muscle function, so you think of your peristaltic movements. Now, when we talk about how these GI uh, functions are going to happen, particularly that relationship between secretion and motility, you want to now focus on your GI effectors. And your GI effectors are going to be the smooth muscles that are going to facilitate your contractions, and then your GI epithelia, which has certain properties that is going to facilitate your ionic movement or your movement of your nutrients. Now, each of these are regulated, once again, by three things. You've got your endocrine hormones, your paracrine hormones, as well as your neural input, whether it's ANS or ENS. Now, the first one with regards to the smooth muscle, you've got it found in your hollow structures, a little bit of uh, histo again, uh, coupled by gap junctions. Remember, it's usually based on your intracellular calcium that's going to aid your force of contraction. And if you've got a high, only until you've got a high amount of intracellular calcium, then you're going to have that contraction. Now, this summary slide just helps you to uh, go back over the process of contraction or smooth muscle contraction. It's not really sure depending on where this smooth muscle is located. You can actually get that intracellular calcium increase from two stores. It can be from your ECF coming into the cell by opening of particular channels, or it can be recruitment of your calcium that is stored within your sarcoplasmic reticulum. Once your intracellular calcium levels are increased, it binds the calmodulin and it, it forms a calcium-calmodulin complex. This activates your MLCKs, which activates your myosin and causes cross-bridging, and so you're going to have that increased muscle tension. Now, once your intracellular calcium levels have dropped when they start to decrease, then this calcium-calmodulin complex dissociates, and so the reverse of this starts to happen. And so you're now going to have muscle relaxation. So what we need for contraction is that a high cytosolic calcium level and to favor a tonic contraction. Now, when we talk about contraction, the motility that we're going to look at can be classified in two ways. You can either look at it as what happens during your fed or unfed state or fasting state, or you can look at it as what causes forward motion versus what causes a mix in motion. Now, in this case, you'll see three main things being talked about. And when we talk about fed and fasting state, you look at in your fed state, you have your peristaltic or your segmentation actions. Peristalsis, when we talk about it in physiology, we think about forward motion. So anything from proximal to distal, it's going to help to move or propel that food along the track. Segmentation, as the name suggests, is that pocketing of the food. And so we pocket it in order to facilitate mixing with the digestive enzymes. The one that we see in the fasting state, it usually occurs every 90 minutes or so, is that one that embarrasses us ever so often when we don't eat and you hear that rumble in the tummy or the grrr. That's your MMCs, your migrating motor complex. And so once you've not had a meal in, say, an hour, 
you're going to have motilin being secreted and you're going to have your MMCs helping to move that partially digested or undigested food along the GI tract. Notice here, when we talk about any sort of contraction, proximal to the bolus of food, you're going to have your circular muscles contracted versus the part that contains or traps that bolus of food, your longitudinal muscles are going to be relaxed. Now, where was this mucosal surface taken from? Stomach, yes, gastric pit, nice. Now, the reason that I selected this one is because it shows the various amount of cell types that can be found within that epithelium. Now, even though this is a single layer thick, you've got it being highly folded, and this is going to increase my surface area for absorption. Now, you'll see once we get into the small intestines, a further specialization where you're going to have your villi and microvilli, which are going to further increase your surface area for absorption. You've got your invaginated glands, and they're going to facilitate secretions. And then notice you're going to have different types of cells that are going to secrete not only uh, enzymes, but also copious amounts of mucus and water. Now, with regards to the transporting epithelia, remember, we're going to go back a little bit to the cell. It's selectively permeable. You've got your barriers, which are your basolateral membrane. You've got your apical membrane. And remember, we're going to talk about what your different transporters and channels are. Any movement of ions are usually based on that electrochemical gradient that's created. So when we talk about absorption, you think about movement based on where the sodium is moving. When we talk about secretion, you talk about where the chloride is moving. Absorption from the lumen or apical surface to the basolateral membrane. Secretion from the basolateral membrane to the apical surface. Now, this movement can happen either transcellularly, so you have the active movements, your passive movements, think about your ions, think about your pumps, think about your channels, Think about your transporters, or you can have your paracellular movement, which is passive movement. Think about what's the electrochemical gradient created. Now, in some parts of the GI tract, the epithelial will have tight junctions. And depending on the tight junctions, it's going to not just hold the cell together, but create two separate cell domains. And depending on the presence of the tight junction, you'll favor water permeability or not. So locations for your tight junctions, you've got distal colon, distal renal tubule, but most of your leaky junctions you're going to have in your small intestine to favor movement of nutrients and fluid. You're going to have your gallbladder, and so you want high water permeability in these areas. So based on what we talked about earlier, yes, transporting epithelia is selectively permeable. But what we want to pay attention in this case is what are your transporters, what are your channels, what are your pumps on the basolateral membrane, what are the same things on the apical membrane. And this is going to help you with each of the different segments determine what influences the directions of those ions.
And so generally, this is a quick cheat sheet to remember. On your basolateral membrane, you've got your sodium-potassium pump, you've got your chloride channel, you've got your potassium channel. On the apical membrane, you've got ENAC, you've got your chloride bicarb antiport, sodium chloride co-transporter, sodium nutrient transporters. These are particularly important in the small intestines. So in the absorption model, this one you have looking now at the function of absorption of sodium and chloride. What facilitates that gradient is that sodium-potassium pump. And so it generates that inward-directed sodium gradient. Now, sodium can get into the cell via different ways. It can use the sodium nutrient by facilitated diffusion. It can use the sodium chloride co-transporter. It can use the sodium hydrogen antiport. And of course, you have ENAC, which are different mechanisms that will bring sodium into the cell. Depending on where you are, these apical uh, transport mechanisms are going to be differently important. Now, this is a, just another way of putting the same schematic. Once you've got that gradient created, that basolateral membrane very positive, you're going to pull chloride paracellularly into that ECF as well. Now, secretion, and when we talk about secretion, remember when we mentioned earlier your salivary glands, your sweat glands, your pancreas, GI epithelia, you're focusing now on the role of CFTR and chloride secretion. Now, you've got sodium potassium providing the energy for your triple co-transporter. You have, in addition to chloride, sodium and potassium coming back into the cell. Chloride, once it establishes that gradient, that high intracellular chloride favors that passive movement of uh, chloride, that ion, into the lumen of the cell. Now, once the lumen becomes very negative, it's going to pull or favor the movement of sodium paracellularly. So, based on these different mechanisms or these models, depending on which segment you are, you're going to pay attention now to what are the particular ions that are going to be secreted. So, when we get to the stomach, we'll focus on the HCL component of that gastric acid. When we talk about the pancreas, we're focused on the bicarb component and how bicarb is secreted. When we get to the duodenum, or part of the small intestine, we look at the bicarb secretion as well as the sodium chloride secretion. And of course, water will follow passively by osmosis. Now, the regulation, or the first part of the regulation, we look at the ANS or the autonomic nervous system. Earlier on, I alluded to the fact that you have two classifications. You've got the extrinsic nervous system being a part of the ANS, and so the parasympathetic and the sympathetic as your components of it. And then you'll hear a lot now about the intrinsic nervous system. Now, when we talk about the intrinsic nervous system, we're talking about the enteric nervous system. And this is particularly what we call our mini-brain or your brain in the gut. Now, the reason it's given the name mini-brain or brain in the gut is that it can function independently of your CNS. 
And so you have got an intricate network of intertwined uh, correspondence between your ANS, your parasympathetics and sympathetics with your ANS. You've got correspondence with the ENS directly with your CNS. Now, the beauty about this is that this network of your plexuses, whether it's myenteric or submucosal, doesn't always need sensory input, CNS input, sorry, to have it work. What it will work with is sensory input. In fact, 75% of this uh, action is of the ENS is based on sensory afferents. So this means if there's any distension, if there's any inflammation, if there's any irritation, you can have action of your plexuses occurring. And so with regards to extrinsic innovation, you've got your main brain, your ANS, receiving sensory input from your gut, sending efferent signals to cause whether it's secretion or motility. You've got your ENS also corresponding directly with your ENS as well. Your parasympathetic nervous system, which is PNS, it's going to promote your secretions, and we talk about the vagus nerve, versus your sympathetics, which just antagonize your parasympathetics. Now, looking closely at your parasympathetics, remember you've got your long parasympathetics, preganglionics, short postganglionics, a little bit of your anatomy coming in. When we think of your vagal nerve, it's cruising from your uh, midbrain. You've got your sacral or your pelvic nerves helping to innovate the lower part of your GI tract. Now, the transmitters that we'll talk about is your acetylcholine, which helps with contraction of the smooth muscle, VIP, which helps with relaxation. Now, the receptors are going to respond not only to distension, but it can respond to irritation, it can respond to nausea, it can respond to chemical changes as well. And so your vagal, vagal reflexes are existent. They're going to respond to that stretch, cause a contraction or cause a secretion, and it can actually help clearing the GI tract during your fed and fasting states. Now, the sympathetic, it works in opposition to the parasympathetics. It causes vasoconstriction of your blood vessels, contraction of the sphincters. You think of your thoracolumbar uh, fibers. You've got your preganglionic, and you've got your postganglionic, which ends mainly on your ENS. In this instance, you have norepinephrine. It's going to act, in this case, on your presynaptic alpha-2 receptors. And this goes to inhibit acetylcholine, which causes the, uh, or, or the release of the parasympathetic nerves. Now, they're also responding to pain. They're also responding to nausea. And they're also going to trigger off your vagal, vagal reflexes. Now, this is a case I saw almost six years ago. This is in the general hospital. A mom brought her three-year-old son. She kept bringing him back for constipation. She thought that he had an issue when he was at daycare. He had just started daycare, and he would not go to stool or he would not go to potty. And the teachers often said that he was taking the time to just play, so he was holding it in. 
We kept giving the mom prune juice. We kept giving her laxatives. We kept giving her different uh, ways to help with the stool or release of the stool until one day she brought the child with a very perturbant abdomen. The abdomen was tender. The abdomen was painful. The abdomen was filled with fecal material. What had happened is that this was a very or misdiagnosed case of Hirschsprung's disease. What's postulated is that the neural crest cells did not migrate to that particular area. So you've got that aganglionic portion within that bowel. And so it looks deceptively normal, but this is actually a pathological part. And so everything proximal to that aganglionic portion contains a distended and it's backed up with fecal material. Now this child had to have surgery. That aganglionic portion was resected and so mom continued and the child is doing much better at this point. Right, so with regards to the regulators, we look at the peptides. All hormones are peptides, not all peptides are hormones, but the hormones that we look at are your neurocrines, your paracrines, and your endocrines. With regards to the neurocrines, we look at the ACH, substance P. With regards to smooth muscle contraction, norepinephrine, and particularly VIP for relaxation. The endocrine hormones we'll touch on shortly, and of course your paracrines, these are peptides that are in the same tissue that is going to act on it locally. And so there are multiple different hormones that are within your GI tract. You've got a whole host of gut-brain peptides. But in this series of physiological lectures, we'll only look at five main ones. Six. We've got motilin, which we mentioned earlier with your MMCs. CCK, we talked about earlier with regards to gallbladder contraction. GIP and uh, GLP, which is your incretins. Secretin, with regards to bicarb secretion and pancreas. And gastrin, which re with regards to gastric acid secretion. Now, depending on what's where and what food you've consumed, you're going to have these gut peptides secreted from different aspects of your GI tract. And so this slide or this schematic helps to remind us where we'll find these different uh, hormones being secreted. When we talk about stomach on Wednesday, we look at gastrin from your G cells being secreted from certain parts of your stomach all the way to the jejunum. CCK, once you've got fatty acids within your small intestines, how they're secreted. Secretin, the bicarb favoring bicarb secretion. We talk about ghrelin. We'll talk about motilin from your M cells and GIP and GLP. Your incretins usually secreted based on your taking in a carbohydrate-rich meal. Now, the several slides that follow are little cheat sheets. It's just the hormones based on what stimulates the secretion, what inhibits the secretion, the site of the secretion, the target of the cells, and the actions of it. So it's in a condensed way and easy for you to go through it when you're making your notes. 
When we talk about stomach, we look at the role of gastrin and how it stimulates gastric acid secretion. We look at where it's secreted from, your G cells in your antrum. You look at it from the duodenum and jejunum. CCK and its role in fatty acid uh, breakdown, amino acid uh, breakdown. It helps with the motility of the gallbladder. It helps with the delivery of chyme from the stomach and it favors pancreatic secretions. We've got secretin and its bicarb secretion, especially by the pancreas. It helps to reduce or inhibit gastric acid secretion. It's from the S cells in the duodenum, jejunum, ileum, and what inhibits and stimulates secretin particularly. You've got ghrelin. It's responding to a hypoglycemic state. It's that hunger hormone. And so it's going to facilitate one gastric motility. It's going to facilitate you wanting to go have a meal. It's from your X cells in the stomach. And of course, motilin, usually released in a fasting state every uh, 90 minutes or so. And it's from your M cells in your duodenum. From the, and it increases your MMCs and your gastric and intestinal motility. Now, recently, there's been a lot of research being done on your incretins. Now, the incretins are what's responsible for when you've consumed a carbohydrate-rich meal. So if you've taken in an oral glucose, uh, or oral glucose, you've got two special hormones that are going to enhance the amount of insulin that's going to be secreted. And so they're going to work to enhance the action of insulin to work or to increase the absorption of that glucose or the oral glucose. Now, what's special about GIP, it's the only one that's enhanced or stimulated by all three types of meals. So it can be glucose in your carbs, it can be fatty acids or the amino acids. And it's going to, they're both going to stimulate insulin release. Now, glucagon-like peptide inhibits glucagon release as compared to GIP, which is going to inhibit gastric acid secretion that inadvertently stimulates glucagon secretion. Now, this is an example. We'll go into it in much detail on that integrated function. You've got CCK and how CCK will work in terms of regulation. You've taken in a fatty acid-rich meal. You've got the receptors on the apical side of your epithelium, sensing this, causing the release of intracellular CCK. CCK gets into the blood capillary, gets to the liver, gets into systemic circulation, and it's going to favor gallbladder contraction, gallbladder motility, and increase pancreatic secretions. And so you're going to now have the different enzymes being released. You're going to have bicarb being released and you're going to favor bile release as well. Now, in terms of how these hormones are modulated, you can have the role of the enteric nervous system as well as parasympathetics or sympathetics, or you can also have your hormones regulating this control. So GRP can inhibit that CCK release.
And I promise you they get harder as the days go by. All right, let's see how you did. This is the last one. Make sure you click in. Not the last slide, last question. All right. All right, excellent. So you've been following thus far. In this case, the key thing here would be stimulate insulin secretion after a carbohydrate-rich meal. And of course, the key giveaway here would be your GLP. Now, let's touch on lightly your paracrine control. These are three major paracrines that we'll talk about, especially when we get to the stomach. Somatostatin, or potent inhibitor. We're going to look at uh, uh, serotonin from your EC cells and histamine, which is going to come from your ECL cells. Now, it's a, going to respond to a different histamine receptor, and we'll talk about it, especially when we get to the stomach. But with regards to somatostatin, we look at its role in reducing pancreatic secretions, reducing gastric secretions, reducing gallbladder motility, gallbladder contraction. It decreases nutrient absorption. So you've got your potent inhibitor versus the excitatory serotonin, which is going to do the opposite. It's going to enhance your motility. It's going to enhance pancreatic secretions. And your histamine, which is going to favor gastric acid secretions, and vasodilations. So, of course, we'll touch on these a lot more in detail once we get to that particular segment or compartment. Right, so we've finished our first hour. We've gorged on the GI tract and talked about the glands. We munched on the transport models. We gobbled up everything to know about the effectors and transport and epithelia. We crammed on those regulators, and so we sampled some endocrine and paracrine cells. I hope you're hungry for more. All right, so we'll meet back in 10 minutes. <laughs> I know, I know.